out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next, I don't know, 60 odd minutes. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be Fudge Tunnel because I spoke to one of the members very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. Yes, it was David Riley. So, after a little bit of casual chat and getting to know each other, we'd never met before, give us a break, and um, we got down to that exciting subject that were the early years, the influential years, the teen years of everybody's life, mostly. Um, Yes, to find out what were his big influences. Sorry about that, that was a dramatic pause. Anyway, this is David replying to that. And saving this interview. Thank God for that. Anyway, enjoy. I had an older sister, which is always a, a good thing if you want to get into music. Um, and so I'd listen to her records and we'd get records together and she'd buy me records for Christmas or birthday. Um, and, and then just like everybody else, I suppose, you know, you listen to your friend's music. And uh, I was, uh, it's like metal mostly when I was a teenager, yes. like most people do. Um, well, then kind of went off metal is... a bit when punk came along, and you know that what have you alternative music, you know, um, yeah. and then you know all the goth stuff got into that, so um, and that going... which kind just... of more or less takes you through to the late eighties when uh, when the band started. Yes, I was just going to say how older, how much older was your sister than you? Uh, about three years. Three years. Because yeah. I Rack had a classic middle middle class two and a half year gap. You know. Okay, because I had a. An older brother, but then, well, I had two older brothers, but one was seven years older and I was kind of, he was kind of my role model and he, but he was funny, right. he, he, he was really into prog rock. So he was into that in the seventies. So I would sneak into his room and play his prog rock records because I thought, you know, they were kind of curious and interesting, but he did have Deep Purple um, live, yeah. live in Tokyo, I think the, uh, or 24 something carrot yeah. purple and then D- uh, black sabbath's best of oh, i don't know black sabbath bloody bloody sabbath so they were the kind of that was my thing and as well as top of the pops and and all the usual stuff that you heard from sweet and and um, yeah. yes the usual cliches and my first yeah, i mean I had, I had a friend who who had a, an older brother as well who was that much older um and he was into lots of sort of uh, american music like um you know, that sort of West Coast stuff, you know, like Grateful Dead and New Riders of the Purple Sage and shit like that, you know, and, and Neil Young and things like that. So, so that, that's another influence, you know, his, uh, his uh, friend's brother's yes. big record collection as well. So as we trucked into the 80s and at that great time of kind of high unemployment and, and sort of the, the world of Thatcherism and, and all that, stuff there was a lot of kind of indie music that started you know especially around the time of the i suppose the the early 80s was kind of like things like echo and the bunny men and simple minds new too and then there was the smiths period i mean what were you kind of listening to in the early 80s uh, in the early 80s um i wasn't that keen on on those bands you just listed i used to like the psychedelic furs a lot um and started to get into stuff like uh, the cramps. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. And, and like I said, the, the goth thing when that came along, it's called goth now. It wasn't really called goth back then, but you know, like Bauhaus and uh, 
and the Sisters of Mercy, uh, Joy Division, New Order, all that stuff. Um, so more, slightly more abrasive stuff than the sort of, uh, you know, the big pop. Um, the jingle uh, jangle of the Smiths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the Smiths a lot as well, though. But I'm, I think almost everybody did. So yes. it's kind of difficult. It get difficult to avoid the Smiths in the early eighties. It was quite tricky. And then, because because one thing I've noticed doing this show was that. A lot of bands, though those kind of the, that classic indie sound, by '87 they seemed to be, you know, like people getting quite tired of it, and then you know, ecstasy, yeah. <laughs> ecstasy was coming along, and then there was that scene. But then there were all those other bands from, I suppose those like um, in America we'd had Sonic Youth and the Butthole Servers and Big Black, and then then there was those yeah. kind of My Bloody Valentine. And one of the bands that I can remember playing at the Norwich Arts Centre was. Um, it was my bloody Valentine with Silverfish on on a sort of double oh, yeah. bill, yeah. and and that was kind of like wow, okay, that noise, North London noise scene, like the Faith Healers and bands yeah. like that. And so, uh, Loop was another big one at the time as well. I remember being very taken with Loop. But we used to play with Silverfish quite a lot in the early years, right? Um, so there was there was some crossover there. They probably started maybe a year before we did, and they got quite. Uh, well known quite quickly because, uh, well, partly because they were a great band and partly because they were very good at drinking in the same pubs as all the London journalists. Um, and they were very good, nice people to get along with and have a drink with, you know. So, yes. Well, um, but yeah, we used to play with, we, they used to let us support them. <laughs> it's probably the best way to put it. Um, <laughs> so we kind of became their baby brother band for a little while. Yeah. And when did you, the, th- the three of you, form Fudge Tunnel? It was... Uh, late 1988, probably November 1988, when we first um, jammed in a rehearsal space together. Yes. How did you um, meet your the other two members? Uh, well, they were they'd already been at it for a few weeks, a couple of months maybe, um, in the same rehearsal space with another guitar player. No, another bass player. That's right. Um, and the, that bass player wanted to switch to guitar, so they're going to have two guitars. So they advertised for a bass player. So um, it was an advert on the uh, the wall of Selector Disc, the famous record shop in Knotts. Um, so I went along, never met any of them before. Um, we had a jam, and that was it. And yes. about two practices later, that the other guy left, leaving the three of us. Um, Which is the classic, know, the, the classic. So when did you first discover the bass? Oh, um, probably when I was about 13 or 14, when I thought oh i know what i want to do i want to be in a band <laughs> and uh bass seemed a lot easier and quicker to learn than guitar um so i picked up a bass yes and i've never it... really played guitar um yeah i can play a bit but i've only got three working fingers on my left hand so it's bass or nothing these days really yeah <laughs> Yes, that is quite. And was there, was there any particular artist like Lemmy or I don't know Susie Quattro yeah. that you thought that's Lemmy? Um, well, Lemmy was one. Uh, Phil Linnett would have been another. Um, yeah, but yeah, probably Lemmy was the most important one. First in Hawkwind and then uh, then in Motorhead. Lemmy was just one of the, the coolest people in my life. I think he was cool. He wasn't. There was no one was quite as cool as Lemmy, was there? No, no. And, you, and it, uh, there's so many people that have, feel like that about Lemmy. And when you consider how uh, 
how not famous he is across a sort of wider public. You know, there's plenty of people that are, you know, like David Bowie and whatnot, who have influenced lots of people and uh, made lots of changes. But the amount of people that Lemmy must have uh, inspired to, to pick up a guitar doesn't bear thinking about. Yes. Well, it's funny because David Bowie and Lemmy were the same age. And whenever they were asked about sort of who their main, well, their first kind of, I suppose, influence, it was always Little Richard, they both used to yep. say. And it was like, okay, I've watched a lot, I've watched a lot of Lemmy interviews. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> he's so, he's so such an inspiration. So how long did it take for the band to get a noise, which was a little bit more like, okay, this is, go- this is going somewhere rather than we're just going to be stuck kind of yeah, in a pub? Yeah, good question. I've been, I've been trying to think about this uh, over the years because, you know, the, the memory fades after a while. And um, as I remember, after, after those first couple of weeks with the other guitar player, we, we carried on maybe for a couple of few rehearsals doing a sort of sonic youthy time, type of noise jam thing which didn't really turn into songs. Um, and then m- me and Alex discovered that we lived around the corner from each other, which was quite odd, because we, we used to rehearse right up in the north of Nottingham in Arnold, above uh, Arnold Liberal Club. Um, and it was after, only after a few weeks that me and Alex actually realised that we lived really close to each other. So we'd pop around each other's houses and check out each other's record collections, and, and we sort of found uh, uh, common ground and decided to try and sort of put a bit more structure to what we were doing in the rehearsal studio. And the the main points of crossover, as I remember, when, um, when particularly when I was looking through Alex's record collection, was, uh, it was Black Flag. I think he had a copy of My War. Um, he had Little Baby Bunting by Killdozer. And I think he had... Oh, he probably had a big black album as well. I right. Remember which one. More songs. Yeah. So, so it kind of decided to just like I said, put a bit more structure to it, and uh, and it started to emerge. But it was always going to be noisy, though. The the sort of the sonic youth noise for the sake of it, and just bending noise. Um, that never really went away, but it started to get a bit more tidy. You know. Yes. And did you, I mean, because I know that with most bands, they get, you know, trying to find a producer who's going to be able to sort of get their sound is always quite tricky. Did you manage to sort of, not latch on to somebody, but did you get somebody who could sort of capture your sound in the studio? Uh, Not for a while. Um, And the sound changed anyway. Um, it, It kind of got more dense and kind of less noisy in a way, but more powerful. Um, as as we went through the first couple of records and and then did an album. So the first guys that we worked with, uh, I think the first guy, yeah, I think we um, when we were with Final Solution Pig Boy Records, so uh, they got a guy called Ian Burgess to uh, produce a record for us, uh, and we were very chuffed about that because we knew that he'd worked with Big Black and a lot of those Chicago bands that we worshipped at the time. Um, uh, but then when we did the album for Earache, the first album, uh, they got their, this guy, Colin Richardson, who was, who was kind of becoming a house engineer in a way because uh, he'd done quite a few Earache things and did quite a few after us as well. And he helped us to make it sound more like what we got in mind at the time, that sort of denser, 
you know, more uh, more sort of low endy noise. Uh, but then Alex started to take over the production after that because uh, that's uh, that was what he decided uh, was where his future lay, and it turned out he was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Because you got a John Peel session quite early, didn't you? Which was always a kind of yeah. a, a blessing, more than a curse. Yeah, definitely. Well, it all happened very early. Um, we we once we knocked four songs together that we thought were okay, we did a demo tape. Um, at a studio in Nottingham, sent it out to all the record companies that we like their records, you know, like all the sort of indies, um, like Vinyl Solution, Blast First, and uh, the American ones like SST and Alternative Tentacles. Um, and uh, this guy, Rob Tennant, who was working at Vinyl Solution, rang us up and said, do you want to make a record? I don't think we'd even played a gig at that point. Um, and... Around the same time that the first record, the first EP came out, we did a couple of gigs. We did just about manage to play a gig before the record came out, which is very unusual. You know, most bands play gigs for years before they get a record out. They did back then, anyway. Yes. Um, so that that uh, connection, because uh, Pig Boy Records, which was um, part of Vinyl Solution, because they were based in London and they were run by this guy Rob Tennant. Um, who was, you know, knew the London scene very well. He knew lots of people. He got us lots of shows in London supporting other bands. So we, we played in London 10 times for every time we played in Nottingham in the first couple of years. Um, so that happened very early, and Rob was probably the one that got us the Peel session as well. Right. And you you worked with the famous Daniel Griffiths on that first one, didn't you? I did, yes. Yes. Which must have felt quite surreal. A grumpy thought. <laughs> yes, not it many... was. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I, thought, I know me and Aidy were big Mott fans. Uh, Alex was probably just a bit too young to really for Mott Hoople to have been on his radar because um, he's about uh, he's about eight, eight or ten years younger than me. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, Dale Griffin was a really grumpy sod. It was like he really didn't want to be there, and he was really sick of being a, um, a house engineer at the BBC, and he really resented all these snotty oiks that came in and made horrible noise. And uh, well, that was the impression we always got from him, anyway. Yes, I think um, most people who do a session with I've not probably mostly people say, "Oh, like, yes, we didn't get on well with him," but he did create a good hmm. session. You know, he did did a good session. Oh with yeah, him. yeah. I mean, he was good at his job. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you'd have that job unless you were good at it. Uh, I think this, the second one might well have been produced by Mark Radcliffe, actually. Yes. As in the DJ, Mark Radcliffe. Yes. I as he is now. And we did an interview with him as well years later, which was which was quite amusing. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's on YouTube if you want to hear it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So and then Alex uh, went and got interviewed by uh, Mark Radcliffe uh, in later years. And I think we'd, we'd just been on tour together for about six weeks. So we were kind of finishing each other's sentences. Um, and and poor old Mark Radcliffe didn't stand a chance, really. <laughs> nice. So then you, but then you signed to Ear, Earache Records for the first yeah. album. And that must, was that kind of a, a natural progression or did that feel? Did no, that... it's a bit of a wrench, really. Um, because we were... We we knew we'd done two EPs and we knew it was like right time for an album, and we got 
ideas about how it wanted to go. We wanted it to go, and it was going to change. The sound was going to change, and we knew it was going to mean studio time. And there wasn't a lot of money on offer from Vinyl Solution. Um, the first two records were both done you know, on a shoestring um, by anybody's standards. Um, and we wanted some studio time to do an album and you know, a bit of equipment, which meant money, and they weren't willing to stomp it up. So um, at the same time, um, Earache Records uh, started to make overtures to us. And to start with, we, you know, we, we, we never thought we'd sign to Earache, you know, the, you know, metal label. We, we all thought the whole grindcore thing was vaguely ridiculous. Um, but they also had some cooler stuff in our eyes, cooler stuff um, mm. as well, like Godflesh. Um, yeah, Godflesh, that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and th- there was money available. Um, so it wasn't, you know, that we wanted the money for our own, um, uh, you know, for living expenses or anything like that, or because we wanted all to you know, buy a swimming pool each or something. It was because we wanted to make a good record. Um, yes. So it, it did feel like a bit of a betrayal leaving Vinyl Solution, though, because Rob Tennant particularly had um, you know, been very instrumental in getting us as far as we had got, but had to move on, unfortunately. Yes. And, it, and then this was um, Hate Songs in E minor. Yeah. Did that session go well? Because as we all remember from those stories, like Black Sabbath's first album, they just had been playing it for years and just went in and recorded it almost in one day. Yeah, what the thing is, Black Sabbath are genius musicians um, and they did theirs in about eight hours uh, recorded I think well that's the that's the tale that's the um, tale we, um, we did ours in about a week I think recorded and then another week to mix it so it wasn't like that at all and um, we took our time over it um, and yeah the, the thing is there's a lot more on eight songs than the first Black Sabbath the first Black Sabbath record is pretty much them playing Yes. Uh, with maybe a guitar overdub and some rain at the start and a couple of bells. Other than that, it's just Black Sabbath playing in a room, pretty much, you know. Um, but, you know, the Hate Songs has got all sorts of... I mean, it's got a lot more than two guitars on it, for one thing. Um, and, you know, putting things like backward reverb on vocals and stuff like that. So, and also, it we, we're not... Black Sabbath, and it took us a few goes to get it down. Yes, we made mistakes, which had to be patched up. And did you find because not many bands often do covers for various reasons? Sometimes it's mm-hmm. like, did you? Because you did too. You did the um, Sunshine of Your Love, and also the the Ted Nugent one. Did you find yes. that um, quite challenging at times? Because that was quite an epic one, Sunshine of Your Love. Sunshine, it was. Yeah. Um, I think that was what we decided to do when we did, when we thought we should do a cover. You know, it was like it was like box ticking time, and every band has its cover. Um, and we wanted to sort of take a classic and ruin it. <laughs> that was the idea. It was, you know, it was a sort of an act of vandalism. Um, so we slowed it down and pitch shifted the vocals and um, made it horrible. And I, th- I think we achieved what we wanted to achieve with it. You know, we really did ruin it um, for a lot of people, hopefully. <laughs> um, but 
Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't challenging. It's quite difficult to play, actually. It's quite difficult to play that rhythm that slowly. Um, so, again, particularly for me and Adrian, um, there was always a bit of a challenge if we ever attempted it live to keep it together at that low speed. Um, but it was always fun to play live because we used to break everything at the end. Yes. Always a thrill, smashing guitars and things. And also at that time, because there was, we'd got the Seattle scene, and and I remember John mm. playing the the Sub Pop One Hundred and then Sub Pop Two Hundred yep. compilations. I remember and, it vividly. And they were incredibly exciting, and, and we we were yeah, because I remember going to see Tad and Nirvana supporting them at the Art Centre. So there was a, there was a oh, yeah, where, where was that the Where's the which? Norwich Art Centre that was Norwich in, okay yeah, that was in eighty yeah, nine. We took them on the same tour. Um, all three of us went to the Birmingham show. Ah, yes. And that was like... Uh, oh. Which was which was at Edwards number eight. And uh, we, we were pretty blown away by it. But the thing is, we've been into that stuff a lot longer than most people. You know, we, you know it's like every, every city probably had a dozen people that knew the Seattle scene already before it got, you know, before that tour and before it was on John Peel and whatnot. Um, and we were... But one of some of those twelve people, you know, so we we knew all, all about Sub Pop already, um, and it was a thrill to see those bands come over. Yes, um, you know, you, you think you know some often you get into these sort of more minor bands, and you never get to see them because they never get big enough to tour. Um, but we were all much more into Tad than Nirvana at that point, and, uh, particularly that show. I think I. I think I might be wrong, but I think Tad went on first because they were flip flopping on that tour. Oh right! They were doing a, a headline each night, uh, and I think uh, Nirvana headlined in Birmingham. And uh, the reason we were there in the first place was because uh, our friends were supporting um, our filler, who we play, who were also on Pig Boy Records and who were fairly local to us, were supporting. So we all got in free, um, and. In fact, the, the singer out of Filler was one of the reasons why we signed to Earache, because he was working at Earache at the time, and he said, you should come, it's cool. Yeah. Um, and he ended up being our agent as well. Many years later. Mm. So it's, it's a terrible, intricate web of nepotism. <laughs> um, yes. But yes, anyway, back to, back to Seattle. Um, yeah, that, that stuff was all very much on our radar. Yeah. Well, I remember the early, well, earlier Sonic Youth albums, and there was Death Valley '69, yeah. and I don't know, I can't remember. But there was an ama- there was one with an amazing cover that we all thought was Kim Gordon, but it wasn't on. It wasn't her actually. It was somebody else. Oh, uh, there was there was um, so, sister, I think. Wasn't yeah, it was Eve. It's evil. E- evil. Yes. Evil. I think has has the girl crawling as one of the panels. Yeah, that that's the one. one yeah, of? that's yeah. the one. And then there was Daydream Nation album, which probably came out around '88, I think. But yeah, but, and that's that's the first time we. Saw Mud Honey actually, because when Sonic Youth toured Daydream Nation, they brought Mud Honey over. Yeah, and, um, and Mud Honey blew us away as well. When I remember seeing again, all three of us went to see them in Leicester, and Mud Honey came on first and um, did In and Out of Grace. And when they kicked back into In, in and Out of Grace after that sort of drop down bit, jaws were on the floor. You know, like, ah, that's how you do it. You know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then, and then it was also. Bands like from Minneapolis, there was the Husker Du, which was probably my favourite band of the 80s, well, part of the... Yeah, again, you know, it, we, we were all sort of into that stuff as well. You know? um, Adrian particularly, see, was important with that, because uh, Adrian, had a ma- even back then, had a massive record collection. 
and was, you know, he was a sort of obsessive in the way that John Peel is, but he, with a definite slant towards uh, American al- alternative and punk rock. Um, so once I went around Adrian's house, it was like, my God, <laughs> <laughs> how many of these can I get in the back of the car to borrow? Yes, absolutely. So when, when you sort of finished that, then were you on the road touring it? Not really, no, because we weren't that big. Um, it was still sort of sporadic gigs and maybe we'd be able to put um, a long weekend together every now and again. We were all still working, um, although in my case, not very hard. Um, but yeah, and it was, I think the year Hate Songs came out, we did shows in Britain as many as we could. Um, you know, some headline and some getting supports. Um, and then we managed to do a fairly short European tour, which was the first time we'd ever toured outside Britain. Uh, it was about, I think it was about 10 days. Um, and the van broke down after the first show. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes the van used to break down before we even got out of Nottingham. <laughs> but, um, we, we did make it out of Nottingham to start with on that tour. Um, and then the year after that, uh, we got offered the Sepultura tour in Europe. So we did about five or six weeks with Sepultura, which again just changed everything. Yes, Cause, did it... you know, because metal audiences and, and suddenly playing to two thousand people a night instead of two. You know. yeah. Was that quite a frustrating time then between, you know, that sort of going from those small gigs to suddenly being supported and thinking, God, this is where we want to be. It was kind of odd um, because obviously you want to play big gigs and you want lots of people to come and see you and uh, uh, that never really did happen. Um, but sometimes we'd play shows and a couple hundred people would be there and sometimes a couple of people would be there. Um, but then playing with Sepultura was, well, it was, it's odd on, in so many ways and on so many, in so many levels. Um well, the first thing was that Earache were very keen for us to do the tour. And then uh, just before we were supposed to go on tour, they said they weren't going to give us any tour support. Now, a tour like that, you've got to have tour support. You can't do it. You know, you're getting 50 quid a night and you're traveling hundreds of miles every day and you've got to have somewhere to stay and you've got to eat. Yes. Um, so the, someone's got to pay for all that. Um and Eric said they weren't going to pay for it unless we signed our publishing over to them. Uh, so being awkward people who don't like being blackmailed, um, we kind of said, well, fuck you, we're doing it anyway. And went down and starved and scrounged and scavenged and bands broke down. And we sold merch and got by on that. Um, we ended up having to send our crew and van and everything home and Sepultura refused to let us home go home um, and they they had us ride on their crew bus and they stowed all our equipment um, under the crew bus to finish the tour for the last few shows um, so that you know they were amazing people it's like you're not going home <laughs> I don't care if you've got no money you're finishing the tour by hook or by crook and that was an education in itself um of, you know that sort of mentality of of touring in rock and roll um you know things get done 
you know, you don't give up, you get on with it. Yes. Well, it's interesting because in the 80s, because I, I did an in, amazingly, I did an interview with Fast Eddie not that long oh, yeah. before he before he passed away, and he said that during that kind of period of the early years, he he did say there was you wouldn't believe how little money there was, and often yeah. they didn't have money to get back from a gig somewhere, so they'd have to, on various occasions, you know, vandalise the van and, and then phone up some you know someone's AA membership and say, could you come and yeah. pick us up from <laughs> Manchester and bring us back to London, please? And he said you the, just um, the you, AA nearly banned me you know, <laughs> because I had this shitty van. Um, which kept breaking down. And so I'd, I'd, uh, it, luckily, it nearly always broke down on the way back from a gig rather than on the way to a gig. But then you'd get an AA relay and they'd drop us off at the top of our street. And I lived at the bottom of a hill, so we'd just roll down the hill and we were home. Um, but I got a letter from the AA that said that they were going to withdraw my cover because um, I'd, uh, I'd used the AA relay service too often <laughs> in, one, in one sort of six-month period. Yes, I know. So, Bam, yes. by the AA. That's rock and roll for you. That was very rock and roll. But that must have been interesting to see a band who were obviously like the Petura sort of on, you know, being supported and being given, you know, what they needed to tour. It must have been frustrating when you were having to scavenge in the sort of like top cat in some bins. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And we got ill as well, particularly Alex. Alex developed pleurisy from having to sleep in cold vans in the middle of the, of the Alps somewhere um, with, with the insu- insu- insufficient sleeping bag or whatever. Um, yeah, it was frustrating. And, and we never really forgave Earache for that either. Um, so, you know, the, the relationship with Earache was... Well, it was already going downhill while we were making the first album, to be honest, but it never really recovered. Yes. So there was always just mistrust and suspicion there. We we never thought of them as supporting us. We always just thought of them as trying to shaft us every which way they could. Did you do quite well then? Because you said you kept your publishing. Did you manage to sort of navigate that through either sort of... Yeah, we, we, um, we did eventually sign our publishing to a major publisher. And uh, yes, we made some money. Hurrah! <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I know that that murky world. But then, when you were doing your second album, which can be sometimes a bit tricky in that cliche, how did that sort of come together? Mm. Creep diets. Yeah, I mean, it was it was that classic thing of uh, you you do all the the songs on the first album have been knocking around for a long time, and they're all honed, and you know. And then you've got to write a load more suddenly. Um, and it was a bit like pulling teeth for a while. Um, but we weren't in that position that a lot of bands are in of being incredibly busy and on tour all the time. We did tour, but then we came home and just did odd gigs again. Yes. Um, so we had plenty of time for writing, you know, but it was still, again, we were all still working. You know, we were, The band wasn't our life at that point. It, it was about to become full-time but it hadn't quite yet yes but it was interesting because you mentioned lube and i did an interview with the the main guy and he he was talking about robert Robert, that's the one Mm. hampston i think his name anyway robert is definitely yeah i can't remember his surname but he was talking about sort of having plastic bags around his feet because they still they they were still quite poor and it was a very wet Mm. a wet winter and 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 it was kind of he had to, um, yes. It, and I was thinking, my God, you know, as a fan, you never realised just how little money bands had got. And, in, and in, in a lot of cases, if it wasn't either living with your girlfriend or parents still, you yep. wouldn't be able girlfriends to... Girlfriends were very important back then. 
Yeah. I even I even married mine just to make sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah I, I got married in '92 just after we'd uh, finished uh, one of the many t- tours for Creep Diets. Right. Because when we did Creep Diets, you see, it did move on. Then we we did tour a lot. Um, we did more with Sepultura over in America. We did our own American tour, which was like three months. We did a six, seven-week European tour as well. And this is all in the space of a year and a half, maybe. So there was a point of you know, 18 months where we were away more than we were at home by mm. quite a long way. Um, and that, again, you know, put strains on things as well. Well, I would imagine, because we, we didn't have iPhones and anything. No, no. Well, I went on tour again recently um, after years and years of not doing it. Um, I used to get viciously homesick and miserable on the road. Um, not nearly so much this time. Um, I went away for a month and I was dreading it. But, you know, like you say iPhones, um, video calling, you know, WhatsApping, as long as you can find Wi-Fi. Yes. You, know, you can to your loved ones and it doesn't feel nearly as lonely. No, but it's interesting because there was two people I interviewed and they talked about, her, you know, homesickness, which was really surprising. One was Niels Lofgren, who once said he couldn't spend mm-hmm. more than 20 days away from home because he just couldn't cope because he missed his family and dog too much. And the other yeah. one, he was, and the other person, which was quite interesting, was um, I was interviewing Toya and she was saying that Robert Fripp just, she would have to talk him out of coming home every day mm. from, you know, King Crimson saying, look, Robert, just stick with it another night. You're in a first class hotel. You've got everything you need. Don't come home, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it was a bit like, you know, and you think, and this was last year. So it was like, it, I never realised, you know, and it's like, so you should have to make him a lot of videos and obviously talk to him for a lot. So homesickness, you know, you, we didn't realise that as, again as a fan that people were just thinking, I'm not really enjoying this. I've got plastic yeah. bags around my feet. I'm freezing yeah. cold. And I'm eating garbage. Yeah. I'm eating crisps yeah. for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Well, is... you know, well, yeah, that's better than no breakfast. It is true. So how did you find America? Because that's something that I didn't realise also kind of drives people to the edge of, I can't do it. Yeah. Um, well, the, like I said, it, it was just so long. We were just there for so long, um, three months. Um mm. And and then the the several tour things in America came after that. I think, I think the first time we went, we'd uh, we'd never toured there. Um, I think the first time we, we we headline, we did a headline tour for three months. Um, and yeah, it was a bit bit, bit of a mind fucker really. Um, Alex was already living over there at the time though, because um, he he'd uh, hooked up with uh, um, this uh, American lady who he, he then married. Uh, called Christina, who was the uh, daughter of Sepultura's manager. So you see the tangled web and net. God, I uh, know. It is like East Enders. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. Oh, yeah. um, I'll give you a cast list later on. Yes. Um, uh, so he'd moved over there. Um, so he was already fairly sort of uh, comfortable with America, but it did my head in. Um, and we were supposed to go over and rehearse for a week because we hadn't seen each other for several months at that point because of Alex um, going to America. Um, We were supposed to go over and rehearse for a week um, in Arizona where he was living. That didn't happen because Adrian contracted chicken pox. Um, So we couldn't fly. I didn't really want to go on my own. So we put it off for a week and eventually Adrian was able to fly, um, but he was all scabbed up still. So he uh, 
We were worried he wouldn't wouldn't get let into America because he looked like he'd got leprosy or something. Mm. Um, uh, so he went through American um, immigration with a balaclava on and just his eyes showing. And uh, the guy at immigration said, oh, have you got chicken pox then? In you come. And yes, I mean, that, that was another of those rock and roll things where, that it's not not really that glamorous having to share a bed with someone who leaves the bed full of scabs. Oh, nice. We were quite we were fine about sharing beds together because usually there's, there's only not enough beds for everybody. Um, but yeah, waking up in a bed full of someone else's scabs. Let's try that on for size. <laughs> God, yes, you don't you but, don't hear about this, do we? Yeah, but America in general was, you know, it was just a a blur, like um, like Europe was a blur, um, or like a a weekend in Britain is a blur. Yes, just, uh, it was it was good having an English accent. I discovered that if you went to eat in a diner or something and you had an English accent, you'd suddenly get incredible service from the waitresses because they thought your accent was so cute. Yes, and they um, always asked so you. So we played that up a bit. We all kind of became Hugh Grant. <laughs> um, yes. This is true. We've done it. Haven't we? uh, so, did you? Um, yeah. So, what Sorry, cities? What cities did you particularly go down well in? I mean, I just wonder which ones. Uh, I don't know. Like I said, we were out for three months, and I don't remember an awful lot of it. Um, we did well in San Francisco. Remember that? Did pretty well in Chicago. Um, oh God, so many. Um, we we had a, a couple of American guys on the crew at that point, and one of them uh, has remained my friend over the years, um, Bob, um, and he likes to tell a tale of us being in, I think it might have been Baltimore or somewhere like that, and uh, we played our usual set and um, did our usual shouting and uh, went off, and uh, he had to come and persuade us to come back on because the audience wanted more, and we thought they hated us. So that sort of that sort of communication was uh, didn't always happen put it that way. Yes. Um, so we didn't they... really like doing encores anyway. No, no. I always find just get on with it and finish, and then we'll yes, go exactly. home. Yes, exactly. Play the set, go on. <laughs> yes, please don't keep doing that. But yeah, so by this, did you were the record sales had they you know for the second album. Were they like, wow, the figures are so much higher than the hate songs? No, all, all three of our albums sold roughly the same. Um, the first one was a surprise to everybody that it did that well. And I think a surprise to everyone, everyone that it was that good in the first place, um, you know, including our record company and us. Um, and then it sold pretty well. Um but the, the next one, although it was then being, uh, it was on Columbia Records in America, so there was support there, um, and you know, major record companies, if they do get behind things, they sell records. You know. um, who was that, who was your that, contact in America? It's not Sigmund Stein, is it? Oh, contact. Yeah, uh, well, the la- the label who. Kind of thought, God, we want these guys on our label. I just wondered if it was anybody. Um, no, well, it was the thing is, it was a label deal. Um, Eric had put their records out through a small indie. I can't remember what they're called. Um, but then Columbia came sniffing around. Bear in mind, 
Nirvana had broken by this time. Yes. All the major labels are hunting around for this stuff that, as usual, they don't understand and have never heard of that is suddenly selling shed loads of records. Mm-hmm. So they start signing everything, you get free feeding frenzy. And they wanted to um, not buy Earache, but do a deal with Earache to, to license their records in America. Um, at the time, we were we were already talking to another company uh, we were talking to a, one of the Warner's companies about signing to them in America. Um, but Eric wouldn't let us because we were, they had to have us as part of the deal um, to get their Columbia deal going. So we were, kind of had to go along with Eric, but we managed to get some money out of them for it. So Which that's is, kind of revenge. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but um, I trying to cast my mind back. Um, I honestly can't remember the, the names of any of the people at Columbia. Yeah. Um, oh no, yes I can. Uh, but but they're not that important. No. To be honest, they were they, they weren't like a contact with the band. They were a contact with Earache, and yeah, you would get kind of schmoozed by people like in Spinal Tap, you know, Bobby <laughs> Fleckman and Arnie <laughs> Fufkin. Um, so yeah, we we met plenty of Bobby Fleckmans and Arnie Arnie Fufkin. Um, we love your guitar. You love these yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we've been listening to you for years. We love your music. I put it on when I was having my breakfast this morning. It's the first time I ever heard you. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then, when you were recording the, because by then the band must have been twenty four seven because you came back. With a with an album followed up in the following year, did you did, when you were doing your your the complicated fertility of ignorance? Did you have a feeling that was going to be your final album? By the way, yeah, we we all knew it was going to be. Yeah, we we agreed between the three of us that that was going to be the last one. Were you um, just were you all completely? Yeah, I mean all the you know the whole all those negative experiences and um, and that brush with. Uh, American major labels, um, we'd all had enough by then, I think. Um, Alex was living full-time in America, which kind of made rehearsal difficult. Um, so in order to write an album, he had to come over to Britain, which meant, again, homesickness. You know, he might as well be on tour, even though he's kind of back where he spent many years. You're still away from your family, his wife. Um uh, uh, so yeah, we 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 pretty much decided we were going to knock it on the head at that point, and Alex, because Alex wanted to pursue a career as a um a producer. Yes. Um. So yeah, definitely. Um, do you do you have fond memories of doing the album? I just wonder if it was one of those because you knew uh, it was your final one. You thought, oh well, let's let's just enjoy it rather than it being really painful. Well. Yeah, it was it was quite quite good fun actually. I mean, writing it was a was different again because we did try and write it a bit quicker. Um, it was a bit more concentrated because Alex was here, so we we did write and rehearse every day um, during the day, like it was a day job instead of you know a couple of nights a week. Um, so the songs did come together quicker. They didn't sort of have as much time to. Uh, mature as the, uh, the the previous ones, um, but we did. Have, we still have a good few ideas in us, um, and actually recording it, I remember enjoying 
a lot as well because uh, we went back to sawmills in Cornwall where we did hate songs which is a great place to be um, and we had a, a lot of fun recording that time uh, mixing it we did, we'd mix it this big studio in uh, Liverpool which was residential as well um, that I, I just remember being incredibly bored because um, I don't like mixing <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a bit pointless us all being there all the time, to be honest. Yes. Uh, we, you know, it'd be better if we'd have sort of just let Alex and the, uh, the engineer get on with it, and then just nipped up for a weekend and uh, and kind of put our our free penis in. Well, absolutely. But then, when that finished, was it? Did it? Did you have that feeling of like, oh, I'm slightly, you know, the weight came off your shoulders, and you thought. Quite relieved, but then missed it. Difficult to remember, to be honest. I think things like that, memories, memory kind of plays tricks with you because uh, we all kind of told ourselves that we'd we'd had enough and we wanted to finish. But I think there was there's also a little bit of you in the back of your mind that would kind of like to carry on um, because it's all you've ever wanted was to be in a band and yes. to make a living out of being in a band, and suddenly you've got to find another way of making a living. Um, and you know, you can't you can't just put another band together some people can but um wasn't really an option no when it's interesting we'll we play in other bands but you know um there's there's something you're very lucky if you can get a band together that functions and works from scratch um you know once you're really famous you know you can get all your rock and roll mates in and form a super group but um that wasn't really the place we were at so. no 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 but people like you often wonder what people like Phil Taylor, you know, from Motorhead, did for the rest of his life after deciding it really was going to be the end of, you know, his time in yeah. Motorhead. And yeah. I know um, Eddie Clark formed a few bands and did a few things, mm. but again, you know, eventually he probably thinks, actually, I might as well just knock yeah. this on head. But, you know. production. And Motorhead sold a lot more records, you know, so mm. they were probably getting royalties. Yes, hopefully. God, I hope they did. You never know, though, do you? So then, what, then you, you start a record label, don't you? Yeah, um, which didn't go that well, frankly. It turned out I was I was appalling at trying to run a record label um, because I have no taste in music and I'm incredibly lazy. Um, so that that didn't really work out. And then I became, in order to dig myself out of the financial hole that I put myself in with the record label, I became an agent um, alongside uh, uh, my friend, uh, who was the singer in Filler, who supported Tad and Nirvana in Birmingham and worked at Earache. That guy, Johnny Barry, um, kind of gave me a job working alongside him as an agent. So he built up a, an agency uh, which was doing pretty well to the extent that he was getting more work than he could really handle. So he kind of gave me the stuff he didn't fancy and oh. to get me started off. Yes. But he used to book bands like Fagazi and Rockets from the Crypt and John Spencer Blues Explosion. Really, really cool stuff. Um, so it's not just, it's nice just being around this. My God, the John Spencer's Blues Explosion was such a mm. favourite band. Um, oh, yes. I mean, I, 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 I'm proud to say I've never had to pay to see the Blues Explosion. Yes. <laughs> and I've seen them dozens of times. Fantastic. And is that what happens for the rest of your, <laughs> rest of your life, is that you, you stay in music in that way? No, um, I, I packed that in uh, around the turn of the century when uh, I'd just become a dad and for the first time and I was trying to do the two things at the same time and I discovered I wasn't doing either of them very well 
Um, so I decided to just be a dad. So I just uh, spent the next 10 or so years um, bringing the kids up. Excellent. And my wife uh, went out to work because she, she's a teacher. She loves her job. Um, I've never liked working, so, you know, it worked <laughs> out quite nicely. Excellent. That's cool. That's cool. And just last question, what what would you have said to a, an 18-year-old self, you know, like starting out, if you could say one bit of kind of advice that you think, oh, yeah, that would have been quite good to have known when I started? Mm, I don't know. It's difficult to... The first few things that came into my head then were all horribly cynical. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> like, trust no one. You know. um, I don't know. Um, You've you got to remember that luck's involved. A lot of luck. Um, don't don't expect anything to happen. Just, just do it because you love it. Yes. Um, and don't expect success. But if you think you can get some success, then grab it and don't worry about being... You know, um, indie schmindy, punk rock, and uh, you know, if you can make a living out of doing something that you love that much, you're very lucky. So you know, grab it. Yes. And did you manage to keep hold of the, you know, the, the music you made with Fudgeknow and and sort of, um, yes, to this day, you know, because I know most people go no. In, in what way keep hold of? Well, I suppose the rights to the songs, you know. Oh, not... I see. Yes. Um, well. Uh, we owned them as far as the publishing is concerned because that reverted back to us eventually. The albums are owned by Earache. Um, and I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure what the legal situation is other than that. I'll have to find out. I don't know if you're aware, but I just last weekend I put out um, this that best of the desk thing on Bandcamp. No, I'm not. Oh, okay. Right, okay. Um, if you go to Bandcamp, Bandcamp yes. has a Bandcamp page. I put together a, um, a bit partly because of the whole everyone being locked up for um, COVID nineteen and everything. I thought, well, nice time to do it, yes, and, uh, and make it a free download and whatnot. And we, we all, the three of us, all agreed it was a good idea. So I put together all these uh, mixing desk tapes um, to make what sounds a bit like a gig from nineteen ninety three Creek Diets tour around Europe, um, and put it on Bandcamp. And uh, it's uh, it's been downloaded quite a lot. Oh, fantastic! Um, but I'm kind of w- waiting for that phone, angry phone call from here, right? Because I honestly don't know what the legal situation is. Yes, because a lot of the, a lot of those songs are on earache albums, but they're not the earache recordings of those songs. We actually own the songs, but I, I honestly don't know. There you go. Mm. I've got we'll it just here. Wait best for the lawyers to call. Best of the desk. I don't know. I mean, you it's good. It? Yeah, I have found it. It's all Volume good. one, notice. <laughs> <laughs> there could be more. Oh, well, I think this is, I mean, I have noticed, and this is obviously people, in especially the first month, were going through their memorabilia boxes of stuff, weren't they? Mm. And p- putting up pictures or, or tour yeah, posters. Yeah, there's been loads of that going on. I, Which, I quite like that, actually. I think it's, it's great. Giving everyone a chance to sit back and do stuff like that. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Going, you know, I saw a few people who put pictures up of... I think it was members of Chumbawamba who'd met De- Dolly Parton and obviously just found the picture after 30 years and thought, my God, I thought... Oh, <laughs> so, um, yes, and I can see a lot of bands. I mean, have you ever been... I mean, it's a bit unfortunate if you're eight, but because a lot of people love to archive their the work that they did back those in those days and put it together in a nice, you know, package booklet, you know, and, and photographs. Have, have you ever sort of wanted to do the same for the band? Um. 
What do you mean, a sort of a retrospective best of kind of thing? Yeah, or are you well, talking about a book? I'm not not quite the book, but more of a kind of like the, the, all the studio albums with a 72-page book. With yeah, them. well, that would be down to Earache to do it, you see. And, and Earache don't speak to us about anything. You can't, can't dig Pearson who owns Earache. won't return any of my calls. Cause they recently um, took all our stuff off um, iTunes and Spotify, um, apart from the things that are on their compilations, Mm. Um, odd tracks they've taken all the albums down so you, that was one of the reasons for doing the Bandcamp thing was it'd be nice if people could at least download something um, uh, but and they won't get back to me and tell me why uh, there's no reason for it they won't re- no interest apparently in reissuing any of the albums um, they did reissue one uh, hate songs as a limited vinyl thing double Thing, but they, I, that had come out. That had been out six months before I even knew about it. They never actually got in contact. So, so yeah, it would be nice, but um, I don't see it happening in the near future because uh, Earache have uh, other fish to fry. Yes, it's a shame because I know Cherry Red Records is always putting out these rather nice compilations, and I think, yeah, mm. as a fan, it's quite nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love things like that, and I'd be, I'm sure all three of us would be quite happy for something like that to happen. But. Um, Earache are a weird bunch. Yes, there's a couple of... And that is the end of the interview with David Riley from Budge Tunnel. Thank you for listening, if you still are. I hope you enjoyed it. Anyway, I enjoyed it. Um, If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. You'll find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Bean. Just go C86 show. It's fascinating. Anyway, thank you for listening. Have a safe week. We return again one day. I know that was a very poor send off.